This is Chapter Thirty Eight of A Tramp Abroad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter Thirty Eight I Conquer a Gornergrat. We went into camp on that wild spot to which that ram had brought us. The men were greatly fatigued. Their conviction that we were lost was forgotten in the cheer of a good supper, and before the reaction had a chance to set in, I loaded them up with paregoric and put them to bed. Next morning I was considering in my mind our desperate situation and trying to think of a remedy, when Harris came to me with a Baedeker map which showed conclusively that the mountain we were on was still in Switzerland. Yes, every part of it was in Switzerland so we were not lost after all. This was an immense relief. It lifted the weight of two such mountains from my breast. I immediately had the news disseminated, and the map was exhibited. The effect was wonderful. As soon as the men saw with their own eyes that they knew where they were, and that it was only the summit that was lost and not themselves, they cheered up instantly, and said with one accord, Let the summit take care of itself. Our distresses being at an end, I now determined to rest the men in camp and give the scientific department of the expedition a chance. First I made a barometric observation to get our altitude, but I could not perceive that there was any result. I knew by my scientific reading that either thermometers or barometers ought to be boiled to make them accurate. I did not know which it was, so I boiled them both. There was still no result. So I examined these instruments and discovered that they possessed radical blemishes. The barometer had no hand but the brass pointer, and the ball of the thermometer was stuffed with tin foil. I might have boiled those things to rags and never found out anything. I hunted up another barometer. It was new and perfect. I boiled it half an hour in a pot of bean soup which the cooks were making. The result was unexpected. The instrument was not affecting at all. But there was such a strong barometer taste to the soup that the head cook, who was a most conscientious person, changed its name in the bill of fare. The dish was so greatly liked by all that I ordered the cook to have barometer soup every day. It was believed that the barometer might eventually be injured, but I did not care for that. I had demonstrated to my satisfaction that it could not tell how high a mountain was, therefore I had no real use for it. Changes in the weather I could take care of without it. I did not wish to know when the weather was going to be good. What I wanted to know was when it was going to be bad, and this I could find out from Harris's corns. Harris had had his corns tested and regulated at the government observatory in Heidelberg, and one could depend upon them with confidence. So I transferred the new barometer to the cooking department to be used for the official mess. It was found that even a pretty fair article of soup could be made from the defective barometer, so I allowed that one to be transferred to the subordinate mess. I next boiled the thermometer, and got a most excellent result. The mercury went up to about 200 degrees Fahrenheit. In the opinion of the other scientists of the expedition, this seemed to indicate that we had attained the extraordinary altitude of 200,000 feet above sea level. Science places the line of eternal snow at about 10,000 feet above sea level. There was no snow where we were. Consequently, it was proven that the eternal snow line ceases somewhere above the 10,000-foot level and does not begin any more. This was an interesting fact, 
and one which had not been observed by any observer before. It was as valuable as interesting, too, since it would open up the deserted summits of the highest Alps to population and agriculture. It was a proud thing to be where we were, yet it caused us a pang to reflect that, but for that ram, we might just as well have been two hundred thousand feet higher. The success of my last experiment induced me to try an experiment with my photographic apparatus. I got it out, and boiled one of my cameras, but the thing was a failure. It made the wood swell up and burst, and I could not see that the lenses were any better than they were before. I now concluded to boil a guide. It might improve him. It could not impair his usefulness. But I was not allowed to proceed. Guides have no feeling for science, and this one would not consent to be made uncomfortable in its interest. In the midst of my scientific work, one of those needless accidents happened which are always occurring among the ignorant and thoughtless. A porter shot at a chamois, and missed it, and crippled the Latinist. This was not a serious matter to me, for a Latinist's duties are as well performed on crutches as otherwise, but the fact remained that if the Latinist had not happened to be in the way, a mule would have got that load. That would have been quite another matter, for when it comes down to a question of value, there is a palpable difference between a Latinist and a mule. I could not depend on having a Latinist in the right place every time, so, to make things safe, I ordered that in the future the chamois must not be hunted within limits of the camp with any other weapon than the forefinger. My nerves had hardly grown quiet after this affair when they got another shake-up, one which utterly unmanned me for a moment. A rumor swept suddenly through the camp that one of the barkeepers had fallen over a precipice. However, it turned out that it was only a chaplain. I had laid in an extra force of chaplains, purposely to be prepared for emergencies like this, but by some unaccountable oversight had come away rather short-handed in the matter of barkeepers. On the following morning we moved on, well refreshed and in good spirits. I remember this day with peculiar pleasure, because it saw our road restored to us. Yes, we found our road again, and in quite an extraordinary way. We had plodded along some two hours and a half, when we came up against a solid mass of rock about twenty feet high. I did not need to be instructed by a mule this time. I was already beginning to know more than any mule in the expedition. I at once put in a blast of dynamite, and lifted that rock out of the way. But to my surprise and mortification, I found that there had been a chalet on top of it. I picked up such members of the family as fell in my vicinity, and subordinates of my corps collected the rest. None of these poor people were injured, happily, but they were much annoyed. I explained to the head chaleteer just how the thing happened, and that I was only searching for the road, and would certainly have given him timely notice if I had known he was up there. I said I had meant no harm, and hoped I had not lowered myself in his estimation by raising him a few rods in the air. I said many other judicious things, and finally when I offered to rebuild his chalet and pay for the breakages, and throw in the cellar, he was mollified and satisfied. He hadn't any cellar at all, before. He would not have as good a view now as formerly, but what he had lost in view he had gained in cellar by exact measurement. He said there wasn't another hole like that in the mountains. 
and he would have been right if the late mule had not tried to eat up the nitroglycerin. I put a hundred and sixteen men at work, and they rebuilt the chalet from its own debris in fifteen minutes. It was a good deal more picturesque than it was before, too. The man said we were now on the Feierstutz, above the Schwegmat, information which I was glad to get, since it gave us our position to a degree of particularity which we had not been accustomed to for a day or so. We also learned that we were standing at the foot of the Riffelberg proper, and that the initial chapter of our work was completed. We had a fine view from here of the energetic Visp, as it makes its first plunge into the world from under a huge arch of solid ice worn through the footwall of the great Gorner Glacier, and we could also see the Furgenbach, which is the outlet of the Furgen Glacier. The mule road to the summit of the Riffelberg passed right in front of the chalet, a circumstance which we almost immediately noticed, because a procession of tourists was filing along it pretty much all the time. Footnote 1. Pretty much may not be elegant English, but it is high time it was. There is no elegant word or phrase which means just what it means. M. T. End of footnote. The Chalotier's business consisted in furnishing refreshments to tourists. My blast had interrupted this trade for a few minutes by breaking all the bottles on the place, but I gave the man a lot of whiskey to sell for alpine champagne, and a lot of vinegar which would answer for Rhine wine. Consequently, trade was soon as brisk as ever. Leaving the expedition outside to rest, I quartered myself in the chalet with Harris, proposing to correct my journals and scientific observations before continuing the ascent. I had hardly begun my work when a tall, slender, vigorous American youth of about twenty-three, who was on his way down the mountain, entered and came toward me with that breezy self-complacency which is the adolescence idea of the well-bred ease of the man of the world. His hair was short and parted accurately in the middle and he had all the look of an American person who would be likely to begin his signature with an initial, and spell his middle name out. He introduced himself, smiling a smirky smile, borrowed from the courtiers of the stage, extended a fair-skinned talon, and while he gripped my hand in it, he bent his body forward three times at the hips, as the stage courtier does, and said in the airiest and most condescending and patronizing way, I quite remember his exact language. "'Very glad to make your acquaintance, monsieur. Uh, very glad indeed, assure you. I've read all your little efforts, and greatly admired them, and when I heard you were here, I—' I indicated a chair, and he sat down. This grandee was the grandson of an American of considerable note in his day, and not wholly forgotten yet, a man who came so near being a great man that he was quite generally accounted one while he lived.' I slowly paced the floor, pondering scientific problems, and heard this conversation. Grandson. First to visit Europe? Harris. Mine? Yes. G.S., with a soft reminiscent sigh suggestive of bygone joys that may be tasted in their freshness but once. Ah, I know what it is to you. A first visit. Ah, the romance of it. I wish I could feel it again. H. Yes, I find it exceeds all my dreams. It is enchantment. I go, G.S., with a dainty gesture of the hand signifying, spare me your callow enthusiasms, good friend, 
yes i know i know you go to the cathedrals and exclaim and you drag through league-long picture galleries and exclaim and you stand here and there and yonder upon historic ground and continue to exclaim and you are permeated with your first crude conceptions of art and are proud and happy ah yes proud and happy that expresses it yes yes enjoy it it is right it is an innocent revel h and you don't you do these things now g s i oh that is very good my dear sir when you are as old a traveler as i am you will not ask such a question as that i visit the regulation gallery moon around the regulation cathedral do the worn round of the regulation sights yet <laughs> excuse me h well what do you do then g s do well i flit and flit for i am ever on the wing but i avoid the herd to-day i am in paris to-morrow in berlin anon in rome but you would look for me in vain in the galleries of the louvre or the common resorts of the gazers in those other capitals if you would find me you must look in the unvisited nooks and corners where others never think of going one day you will find me making myself at home in some obscure peasant's cabin another day you will find me in some forgotten castle worshipping some little gem or art which the careless eye has overlooked and which the unexperienced would despise again you will find me as guest in the inner sanctuaries of palaces while the herd is content to get a hurried glimpse of the unused chambers by feeing a servant h you are a guest in such places g s and a welcoming one h it is surprising how does it come g s my grandfather's name is a passport to all the courts in europe i have only to utter that name and every door is open to me i flit from court to court at my own free will and pleasure and am always welcome i am as much at home in the palaces of europe as you are among your relatives i know every titled person in europe i think i have my pockets full of invitations all the time i am under promise to go to italy where i am to be the guest of a succession of the noblest houses in the land in berlin my life is a continued round of gaiety in the imperial palace it is the same wherever i go h it must be very pleasant but it must make boston seem a little slow when you are at home g s yes of course it does but i don't go home much there's no life there little to feed a man's higher nature boston's very narrow you know she doesn't know it and you couldn't convince her of it so i say nothing when i'm there where's the use yes boston is very narrow but she has such a good opinion of herself that she can't see it a man who has traveled as much as i have and seen as much of the world sees it plain enough but he can't cure it you know so the best is to leave it and seek a sphere which is more in harmony with his tastes and culture i run across there once a year perhaps when i have nothing important on hand but i'm very soon back again i spend my time in europe h i see you map out your plans and g s no no excuse me i don't map out any plans i simply follow the inclination of the day i am limited by no ties no requirements i am not bound in any way i am too old a traveler to hamper myself with deliberate purposes i am simply a traveler an inveterate traveler 
a man of the world in a word i can call myself by no other name i do not say i am going here or i am going there i say nothing at all i only act for instance next week you may find me the guest of a grandee of spain or you may find me off for venice or flitting toward dresden i shall probably go to egypt presently friends will say to friends he is at the nile cataracts and at that very moment they will be surprised to learn that i am away off yonder in india somewhere i am a constant surprise to people they are always saying yes he was in jerusalem when we heard of him last but goodness knows where he is now presently the grandson rose to leave discovered he had an appointment with some emperor perhaps he did his graces over again gripped me with one talon at arm's length pressed his hat against his stomach with the other bent his body in the middle three times murmuring pleasure i'm sure a great pleasure i'm sure uh, wish you much success then he removed his gracious presence it is a great and solemn thing to have a grandfather i have not purported to misrepresent this boy in any way for what little indignation he excited in me soon passed and left nothing behind it but compassion one cannot keep up a grudge against a vacuum i have tried to repeat this lad's very words if i have failed anywhere i have at least not failed to reproduce the marrow and meaning of what he said he and the innocent chatterbox whom i met on the swiss lake are the most unique and interesting specimens of young america i came across during my foreign tramping i have made honest portraits of them not caricatures the grandson of twenty-three referred to himself five or six times as an old traveller and as many as three times with a serene complacency which was maddening as a man of the world there was something very delicious about his leaving boston to her narrowness unreproved and uninstructed i formed the caravan in marching order presently and after riding down the line to see that it was properly roped together gave the command to proceed in a little while the road carried us to open grassy land we were above the troublesome forest now and had an uninterrupted view straight before us of our summit the summit of the riffelberg we followed the mule road a zigzag course now to the right now to the left but always up and always crowded and incommoded by going and coming files of reckless tourists who were never in a single instance tied together i was obliged to exert the utmost care and caution for in many places the road was not two yards wide and often the lower side of it sloped away in slanting precipices eight and even nine feet deep i had to encourage the men constantly to keep them from giving way to their unmanly fears we might have made the summit before night but for a delay caused by the loss of an umbrella i was allowing the umbrella to remain lost but the men murmured and with reason for in this exposed region we stood in peculiar need of protection against avalanches so i went into camp and detached a strong party to go after the missing article the difficulties of the next morning were severe but our courage was high for our goal was near at noon we conquered the last impediment we stood at last upon the summit and without the loss of a single man except the mule that ate the glycerin our great achievement was achieved the possibility of the impossible was demonstrated and harris and i walked proudly into the great dining-room of the riffelberg hotel and stood our alpenstocks up in the corner yes i had made the grand ascent 
but it was a mistake to do it in evening dress. The plug-hats were battered, the swallow-tails were fluttering rags, mud added no grace, and the general effect was unpleasant and even disreputable. There were about seventy-five tourists at the hotel, mainly ladies and little children, and they gave us an admiring welcome which paid us for all our privations and sufferings. The ascent had been made, and the names and dates now stand recorded on a stone monument there to prove it to all future tourists. I boiled a thermometer and took an altitude, with a most curious result. The summit was not as high as the point on the mountainside where I had taken the first altitude. Suspecting that I had made an important discovery, I prepared to verify it. There happened to be a still higher summit, called the Gornergrat, above the hotel, and notwithstanding the fact that it overlooks a glacier from a dizzy height, and that the ascent is difficult and dangerous, I resolved to venture up there and boil a thermometer. So I sent a strong party, with some borrowed hose, in charge of two chiefs of service, to dig a stairway in the soil all the way up, and this I ascended, rope to the guides. This breezy height was the summit proper, so I accomplished even more than I had originally proposed to do. This foolhardy exploit is recorded on another stone monument. I boiled my thermometer, and sure enough, this spot, which purported to be two thousand feet higher than the locality of the hotel, turned out to be nine thousand feet lower. Thus the fact was clearly demonstrated that, above a certain point, the higher a point seems to be, the lower it actually is. Our ascent itself was a great achievement, but this contribution to science was an inconceivably greater matter. Cavillers object that water boils at a lower and lower temperature the higher and higher you go, and hence the apparent anomaly. I answer that I do not base my theory upon what the boiling water does, but upon what a boiled thermometer says. You can't go behind the thermometer. I had a magnificent view of Monte Rosa, and apparently all the rest of the Alpine world from that high place. All the circling horizon was piled high with a mighty tumult of snowy crests. One might have imagined he saw before him the tented camps of a beleaguering host of Brobdingnagians. But, lonely, conspicuous, and superb, rose that wonderful upright wedge, the Matterhorn. Its precipitous sides were powdered over with snow, and the upper half hidden in thick clouds which now and then dissolved to cobweb films, and gave brief glimpses of the imposing tower as through a veil. Footnote number two. Note. I had the very unusual luck to catch one little momentary glimpse of the Matterhorn wholly unencumbered by clouds. I leveled my photographic apparatus at it without the loss of an instant, and should have got an elegant picture if my donkey had not interfered. It was my purpose to draw this photograph all by myself for my book, but was obliged to put the mountain part of it into the hands of the professional artist, because I found I could not do landscape well. End of footnote 2. A little later the Matterhorn took to himself the semblance of a volcano. He was stripped naked to his apex around this circled vast wreaths of white cloud which strung slowly out and streamed away slantwise toward the sun, a twenty-mile stretch of rolling and tumbling vapor, and looking just as if it were pouring out of a crater. Later again, 
one of the mountain's sides was clean and clear and another side densely clothed from base to summit in thick smoke-like cloud which feathered off and flew around the shaft's sharp edge like the smoke around the corners of a burning building the matterhorn is always experimenting and always gets up fine effects too in the sunset when all the lower world is palled in gloom it points toward heaven out of the pervading blackness like a finger of fire in the sunrise well they say it is very fine in the sunrise authorities agree that there is no such tremendous layout of snowy alpine magnitude grandeur and sublimity to be seen from any other accessible point as the tourist may see from the summit of the riffelberg therefore let the tourist rope himself up and go there for i have shown that with nerve caution and judgment the thing can be done i wish to add one remark here in parentheses so to speak suggested by the word snowy which i have just used we have all seen hills and mountains and levels with snow on them and so we think we know all the aspects and effects produced by snow but indeed we do not until we have seen the alps possibly mass and distance add something at any rate something is added among other noticeable things there is a dazzling intense whiteness about the distant alpine snow when the sun is on it which one recognizes as peculiar and not familiar to the eye the snow which one is accustomed to has a tint to it painters usually give it a bluish cast but there is no perceptible tint to the distant alpine snow when it is trying to look its whitest as to the unimaginable splendor of it when the sun is blazing down on it well it simply is unimaginable end of chapter thirty eight